1: Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
2: quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
1: Thursday morning, the tenth of August. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till eleven a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government has introduced a new protocol which will require student accommodation to have been vacant for at least a year before it can be used to house refugees and asylum seekers. The news follows an agreement between Simon Harris, the minister for higher education, and the minister for integration, Roderick O'Gorman. It's news that will come at as a significant relief to hundreds of students in Sligo who were told last month that two separate developments which were to be available to students were being repurposed and would be used to house refugees instead. Let's speak uh, to Martin Kenny who's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Sligo Leitrim. A very good morning to you, Martin Kenny and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Tell us what happened in Sligo because this was four to five hundred students who were left out on a limb all of a sudden overnight out of the blue as they put it.
0: Now, this is a, a complex of student accommodation that was built a good few years ago, over 10 years ago and um, some of it even longer and it had been used for student accommodation all along. That's what it got planning permission for. However, the owners of it last year um, applied online to an online portal with a department uh for integration, looking for to use it for accommodation for asylum seekers. And they were quite vague in the parts of it as to what it was used for before. And they, they pulled it off and they got a contract. And clearly the department didn't do due diligence and didn't check it out properly because, as you say, 4 500 students had been using this and it was full all the time because it's good accommodation close to the colleges. And most of these students are not, as you say, from Sligo. They're actually from other places. Many of them, I'm sure, from your own area uh, who will be going to college in Sligo and need accommodation there because students, obviously, that live in Sligo will be staying at home. But um, it meant that we were getting calls as public representatives from every part of the country. Our families had been, some of them had been in that accommodation the previous year, had booked and paid deposits, and all of a sudden the deposits came back to the post posted them and they were told that they were not uh, going ahead, but they wouldn't tell them why. Right. Uh, and it's more clear that what was happening was that this this particular uh, owner of this accommodation had, had got this contract. Now, when we got on to Roderick O'Gorman, in fairness, he, he recognised it was mm. going to be a serious problem. And he said he'd do everything he could to back out of the contract and to try and put a protocol in place that it wouldn't happen again. So it's, it's good news for everyone that that has happened. But I think it was uh, a huge drop of the ball by the department for to let this happen in the first place.
1: Right, and very bad publicity because, I mean, this is the case that is being made so often that uh, there's homeless people in this country, there's students, there's an accommodation crisis. We can't uh, accommodate all of the people in this country, let alone refugees or asylum seekers. On top of that, you hear that all of the time, but we're told, no, there are two different problems here the government, the department, the minister, whoever is responsible, conflated the two, did they not?
0: It did, and it's caused a lot of of anger and and, and difficulty for people and, of course, said that, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, racist and, and... difficult conversations that people can have and at the same time we understand it's very genuine. Students need accommodation. I have three I go to college myself at the moment so I know all about it and uh, it's difficult to find accommodation. Many of them end up in digs and in, in substandard accommodation often as well. But if they can get anywhere, they're delighted to get it at this stage. And uh, for to take student accommodation, which was purpose-built in that way, and use it in this manner, you know, was totally inappropriate. And the minister and the government recognised that when it was pointed out. Hmm. They said they were going to have a difficulty to back out of the contract. We understand they've done that now. The difficulty is we still haven't heard from the owners of the, the, the accommodation that they are going to reuse it for students. That hasn't been made clear just yet. But we expect that it will be because there's, there's no other use for it, really, when you're in the context of, of where it is and its proximity to the College and all of that.
1: Is, is that the case, So, I mean, as you say, it's, it's uncertain. Can they argue that they have a, a contract with the department? This is a, a new protocol, but can it be applied retrospectively?
0: Well, I'm sure at this stage the, the, the government is saying, and, and what, what we're hearing is that they have come to an arrangement that that contract will not go ahead. And if that contract isn't going to go ahead... What else are they going to do
1: with it? Because at the end of the day, what they're doing is looking for money, uh, as is their right Uh, uh, and would be the case with any accommodation provider. I think probably part of the problem here is that housing international protection applicants, in particular, rather than refugees from Ukraine or anywhere else, uh, pays a, a lot more than it pays for housing refugees, let alone students.
0: That's right, and and it's all year round. It's, it's 24-7, 365 days a year, for students, as we know, are only there during the college year. And that's that's the difficulty that, that of course, the owners of the accommodation are looking to make more money. Uh, but, you know, we have to have a context in all of this. It was built as student accommodation. That was the the project that was set out, if you like, the, long, the long-term use of it, mm. and it needs to be held for that, as does all other student accommodation around the country. I think part of the arrangement that's also come to is that over the summer months, and these accommodations would often be empty or near enough that they could be used to house uh, asylum seekers or, or refugees yeah. mm. temporarily over the summer. Yeah,
1: many and places are process, and that's a, a yeah. sensible approach really, isn't mm. it? You know, it'll get you out of a, a short-term fix.
0: Hotels, hopefully, they wouldn't be, they, wouldn't, they would need space and accommodation mm. in the hotels for tourists.
1: Mm, absolutely. Uh, and it's a short-term fix uh, and uh, one uh, that has worked well to a certain degree in, in many places. Uh, but students themselves, as you say, are a very vulnerable category of of people when it comes uh, to finding, let alone affording uh, accommodation uh, and I see guardia warning of a 65% rise in rental fraud for students uh, because they're just so desperate that they'll pay people that they even haven't even met let alone seeing uh, the, the, the place uh, that they're hoping to live in um, but wh- why is it so profitable for um, uh, these accommodation providers these companies uh, to take in international protection applicants uh, rather than students?
0: Well, as I say, the first reason is because it's it's all year round and the students are only mm. summer, or sorry, the students are, are only for the, the months that the college are open and are empty in the summer. So it's it's much more profitable. Um, the fact as well, I think, that they, as well as, as providing the accommodation in some of the cases, they also have contracts which provide meals with them and everything like that. So it's, it's full room and board in some cases. Uh, The reality is that because it's so difficult to find accommodation, the government are desperate and they have to pay maybe above the odds or to get accommodation. Uh, Of course, there's a lot of people, you know, annoyed that some of these providers are coining it and making huge profits on the backs of, of vulnerable people that are coming to the country. Yeah. But the truth is that, you know, we could say the same of a lot of landlords around the country at the moment mm. that are making huge profits on the backs of the housing crisis. Uh, and many landlords are not. Many are, 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 are charging a fair rent to provide an excellent service. In fact, that's the vast majority of experience for most people. But, you know, it, it, is, it is a difficult time. And until we get more housing built, and we get more accommodation provided for everyone, people from Ireland, people from other places, for students, or people who are in difficulty with their mortgages who end up having to, having to have their homes repossessed, for people whose landlord decide they want to sell the house or decide they want to, to put family into it and, and that they have to leave. All of those pressures are coming on, and at the core of it all is because we don't have enough housing, particularly if we don't have enough affordable housing, I think, Michael, mm-hmm. it's a big one. Social housing is also an issue, but there's a lot of people with the social housing list you know, the the and, and they have to be dealt with. But people who have an income that's slightly above that, that can't get on the social housing list, yet they can't afford to rent on the high prices there is at the moment, mm-hmm. and they can't afford to, to get a mortgage because of their income is too low for that. Yeah. So we have a space in the middle there which is, is really affecting an awful lot of families and I think government really need to, to accept that they have a big responsibility for to provide not just social housing but also affordable housing for people across the country.
1: Okay, in this case, um, the landlord would have been paid more for a house Uh, asylum seekers uh, than it it would have been uh, to house students. We had a a case here locally uh, a couple of weeks ago where it appears Ukrainian refugees were being moved out of accommodation because uh, it would have resulted in a higher yield for the landlord to house asylum seekers. Uh, Does... Uh, this not lay bare the reality of the government scheme. You talk about people coining it. If there's an opportunity to coin it, there'll always be people there who will take advantage of that opportunity. But this is a scheme that is designed in such a way that it is easy to exploit it, is it not? In that you can move people out, uh, provided that can be done legally, which uh, it can be uh, with students or Ukrainian refugees, particularly vulnerable people. You move them out of their accommodation As soon as they're gone, you start moving in bunk beds and where one person would have had a a bedroom, you've suddenly four, six, eight people who have a a bunk in that room.
0: Yeah, that is a difficulty, and we've heard and have have had experiences of that and I'm aware that in some cases. Now, I'm also aware that in places where the department have found that there has been gross overcrowding, that they have closed down uh, certain providers and have refused to to allow people to go back to them and I know that has happened. Mm. So, you know, it's it's really, uh, I think you know, a situation where we have two tiers of, of refugees, if you like, we have the people who come from Ukraine who are free in war, we have people who come from other places around the world also free in war and persecution and human rights violations, and they also have to be accommodated. However, we have two different, if you like, uh, sets of rules for them, and that is the difficulty. Mm. And I, I think the government have made a real mistake in that, is that they've, they've treated the two in a different manner, and in one case... It's the, the some people say that the Ukrainian people are better looked after in one sense, and in another sense, the people who provide accommodation are better looked after for providing accommodation for people who come outside of Ukraine from other countries. And you know, all of that is, is is a bit of a mess. And and I think you know the the uh, reports that were done down the years. And I was on the justice committee when we looked at some of this about ending direct provision as a model and, and really what we're talking about here is coming up with a model which is a better form of provision. There's always gonna to have to be a responsibility on the state for to provide provision for people who are fleeing war and persecution from any part of the world in the country we sign up to that under uh, United Nations protocols and every country does. So we have an obligation there but the system we have is not a good system and i think we need to look at that again and, and find a better way of dealing with it but all of it is very bandjacks because of the housing crisis we have in the country in the first place yeah. um, and that's, that's the real core of a lot of these problems
1: I, i've heard it said that providing accommodation to international protection applicants has become a cash cow For some landlords, uh, if that's the case, it would seem very, very wrong because it's people profiteering on the backs of misery and all of uh, the problems that uh, these people leave behind them, as you say, from war-torn countries and other problems, persecution and torture and so on. And it really would beg the question how that was allowed to Uh, Develop and uh, what do we do now? Is it a a question of going back to the drawing board and looking at at some of uh, these contracts and, and the way that they're structured?
0: Yeah, there's all of that. And and I think, you know, while we can be critical of people and say that they're making too much money, obviously, if the opportunity is there and if government gives them the opportunity to do that, they're going to avail of it. That's that's human nature. That's what will happen. So I, I think, you, you know, we need to look at the overall picture. I don't think there should be a difference between a person who's fleeing war, whether they're coming from uh, some part of, of, of Syria or or. Uh, support of North Africa or somewhere like that or they're coming from Ukraine I think it should be the same rules and the same balance should apply across the board Uh, I think the same thing should be in regard to how uh, the providers are paid and what manner and mechanisms they're paid paid under. Now, the people who are making the big profits on it, and that we all hear about, are the very large providers, the people who have very large sections of accommodation, with Mm. hundreds or sometimes thousands of people staying with them. They're they're making very, very large profits because they have an economy of scale around it. There's a lot of small providers Mm. who have uh, maybe a big guest house or a small hotel or something. And to be honest with you, Michael, they have had this as as something that has, has given them a lease of life, because after Covid they were closed down for years but, yeah. uh, you know we're mm. quite probably on, on the red line as far as trying mm. to be able to pay their bills was concerned oh
1: they're this small the small villages who can villages. keep the schools open yeah. because there's enough children now. Absolutely, yeah. there's yeah. A, a absolutely a, a, and there's the problems uh, that those people are, are leaving behind and our responsibility as human beings uh, to respond to that and how desperate uh, those people are I think has been evidenced by the news this week of uh, the watery grave in the Mediterranean once again, uh, that has another uh, group of uh, people buried there, 41 migrants uh, uh, from a ship that had been carrying 45 people, uh, just four survivors uh, out of that. But that is the desperate situation or how desperate the people's situation is uh, that they'd get onto a boat like that out into the water, not knowing if they're going to get to the other
0: side. That's right. They're the coffin ships of the modern world, you know. Mm. We think about the salmon in Ireland, and and you know the truth is we we have to try and and do our best, and you know it, it is difficult, and it is it is full of of uh, uh, hard choices for people, and you know, but at the same time, the Irish communities across the country have been extremely generous Mm. as some
1: people. Okay. Indeed, uh, I'm sure uh, when the 45 people got on that boat uh, whenever it was last week uh, from Tunisia, they'd have known that many people, uh, in fact 22,000 people are thought to have lost their lives in the Mediterranean under such circumstances. We'll leave it there for the moment though, Martin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Sligo, Leitrim, Martin Kenny.
3: Michael,
1: Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I want to read a letter published in the Irish Times uh, this morning for you. It reads, Sir, over 70% of those who go to prison have an addiction. Many of the crimes uh, that brought them there were drug-related. There are long waiting lists for those drug treatment centres that exist, and in many parts of the country there are no treatment centres at all. If we want to reduce crime, would it not be more effective to invest in treatment options than in Garda Overtime. Yours, etc. Father Peter Macvery, SJ. As I say, that's uh, Father Peter Macvery's letter published in the Irish Times today. It echoes what the former Chief Superintendent for Louth, Christy Mangan, told us on this programme yesterday.
4: And it's not just the addict, the person who's addicted to drugs. It's about the mum or dad. It's about the sister or brother. Who are living in this chaotic environment? The f- drug dealers coming, screaming. You know, some guy's six foot three, four, and he's there, and he's gnarling at your door, and he's wants uh, a thousand euros, and he's coming back in in a, a, a week's time, and it's five thousand euros, and then a petrol bomb goes in, and people of Draho know this better than me. And then all of a sudden, then how did they come? How did how did they pay it? Mm. Some people then have to go into debt. So unless we get at the root cause of it, and one of the ways to deal with it is demand reduction, and that is putting the services in that when a, a young guy or whatever, or lady on, on a Monday morning gets up and says, right, my life is going down, down the tubes, I need to get help. So I will go to one of these agencies, uh, the red door, and say, right, I want to get off drugs. So can they get on a course immediately? No, they can't because there's a queuing system, and, and that's, that's a fact of life. So if we don't invest in the demand reduction, it'll have a huge impact in less than a year. Mm. Because those people then if they're working, that's fine. They can they can they can finance their own habits, you know, and, and that they will survive for a certain period of time until it impacts them maybe in their job and then maybe they, they lose the job. But then there's other people who don't have the wherewithal maybe to have the the high power job to pay for their thousand euros a week maybe addiction problem and then they start to get involved in criminality and then it drags down them and then it drags down the family unit Mm. and then it starts dragging down the housing estate that they're living in and it's literally like an infectious disease it just takes over a town Mm. and is only over 41,000 a prosperous town in one way but when you you go in and look at it you see then there's an underbelly there Mm. An underbelly of criminality, and it's in every town. It's in in a lot of villages, and unless we deal with the drug addiction, the crime, the guards, yeah, that's their job. Get on yeah. with it. De- deal with it.
1: That's former Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan speaking to me yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Father Peter McVeary, Jesuit priest now. A very good morning, Peter. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You asked if it would be more effective to invest in in treatment programmes than on guard Overtime. Uh, You heard uh, the former Chief Superintendent there talk about the Red Door Project, uh, which is based in Drogheda, and I'm sure you're aware of all of the problems in in Drogheda, and that in the Red Door, if you want to get onto a treatment programme, is a queuing system and you'll wait a year. It is peculiar and there was a certain frustration expressed by the former chief superintendent yesterday uh, about that situation in Drada and a lot of other issues in Drada and the surrounding areas following on from the feud. Because Drada, we were promised, would be prioritised for investment. So if it's that bad that you can't get onto a programme in Drada for a year, uh, it must be pretty dreadful elsewhere.
5: It is. I can identify with everything that uh, former uh, superintendent Christie said. Uh, it's just such so, such common sense <laughs> to invest in drug treatment. Uh, I mean, it's frustrating. I am I am very frustrated uh, working with drug users when they want to come off and they're they're really committed to coming off and you put them on a waiting list and they become despondent, and they get demoralized. Uh, They want to come off drugs, but you tell them, no, you have to continue using drugs for the next three months, and then we'll get you onto a program. It's very, very demoralizing. And the drugs is destroying this country. Not only is it, uh, it's in every single village in this country. You can get any drug of choice. I can make a phone call, and I can get any drug of choice delivered to my door quicker than a pizza. And that's and it'll be delivered by a thirteen or fourteen year old on a bicycle. Mm. Now that's just it's just generational. We are creating more and more drug dealers uh, and more and more drug users uh, uh, all, all the time. Mm. So a Do- huge a huge amount of monetary crime uh, is drug related, and a huge amount of other crime like assaults, intimidation, threats. Uh, Uh, is also drug-related. You know, this, this issue, drugs, I've always said drugs is a far greater threat to the stability and security of this country than the IRA ever were.
1: Yeah, uh, well, we are living, uh, or had been living, with petrol bombs, stabbings, fist fights, shootings, uh, attempted murders, murders. Uh, the most horrible murder, uh, I think, ever committed uh, in this country, at least, of Kemal Reedy Woods. Uh, and people said, "Stop!" There were five thousand people out demanding change. Change uh, was promised, the Taoiseach was here, Uh, every political party leader was here, Uh, the minister is relatively local, Helen McEntee, she promised there would be change, but uh, we're hearing there from the top cop, if you like, uh, the investment hasn't followed the talk.
5: No, I think part of the problem is that most of the decision makers in our society live in nice areas. Where people do take drugs, but as the superintendent said, they can afford to pay for their drugs because they're in good paying jobs. So they don't see the effects of the the drug problem. They don't experience it. Uh, It's not in their community. And so it's out of sight and out of mind. It's also very expensive to invest in drug treatment, but... It's far more expensive not to invest in drug treatment. As I say, the drug courts, the courts in our country are full of people uh, who appear before them because of an addiction. Our prisons are full of people with addictions. It's costing a huge amount uh, to individuals for, for burglaries, crime, theft, uh, and it's causing a huge amount of emotional uh, pain to people who have been robbed, who are being threatened, who are being intimidated. Mm. So I think, it's, it's to me, it's, it's one of the most urgent uh, things we should do in our society is to address this drug problem. Mm. And as the superintendent said, we can't control the supply of drugs. Ireland is an open country, thousands of containers coming in every day, little ports all around the country uh, that are unmanned, large coves, hidden coves where boats can come in with drugs. International research suggests that 10% of drugs coming into a country are intercepted but 90% get through and we have to live with that. So we can't control very much the supply of drugs but controlling the demand for drugs is within our ability uh, and that's what we're not doing at the moment adequately.
1: Okay well if uh, somebody breaks into your house you'll know the cost of it uh, sometimes more than other times Uh, but quite often uh, the burglar is a drug addict. Then there's the cost of the court case uh, and the guard time uh, if uh, they're apprehended. Uh, and then there's uh, the cost of incarcerating people. It's not cheap to put people in prison, uh, I think, as everybody knows. And then there's the lost opportunities, the, the, the lost lives and people lost uh, to their families and loved ones. Uh, they go down a road that there's no coming back from sometimes.
5: Yeah, that's got huge knock-on effects. Uh, You know, everybody's paying for it because your insurance premiums for your home insurance are going uh, go up because because of the the burglaries that uh, occur in other people's homes. and the drugs that are prevalent today, the most prevalent drug in, in my area at the moment is crack cocaine. Okay, and Crack cocaine makes people very aggressive and potentially mm. very violent.
1: Okay well I see uh, there's uh, posters around uh, certain parts of uh, Dublin now uh, that say you're in a designated crack and heroin zone, crack and heroin use permitted in this area. I'm sure you've seen these uh, and they are of course false posters but I think it probably speaks to the frustration that many people have watching their loved ones, their children, their neighbours, their neighbours' children, whoever it is, uh, get involved in drugs and how their lives are are, are being ruined and seems to go uh, without the proper... A response or treatment services uh, as you say as you said earlier on you could uh, get a 13 year old to deliver whatever drug of your choice is to your house uh, what do you think of those posters uh, is it a good idea they've been um, criticized by them, a lot actually of they're not okay.
5: in Dublin uh, to the best of my knowledge ok well apparently uh, I've
1: re- read in the papers this morning uh, that uh, they're um, in certain parts of Dublin Dublin City Council uh, have said uh, that they're not uh, helpful that they're causing frustration confusion and anger yeah.
5: mm. I mean, I haven't seen them personally, yeah. mm-hmm. but I mean, you could, you could, you could say that of the of the whole of Dublin. Crack cocaine is uh, is is in this area. Crack cocaine is the drug of choice. Yeah. It's very yeah. expensive. Uh, you know, crack cocaine only gives you a high for a few minutes. So if you're addicted to it, you need a lot of crack cocaine. We had one lad who got a claim of 100,000 euros from an accident. It was all gone in three months on crack cocaine. So it's very expensive, and that means a lot of robbing. And if somebody tries to intercept you when you're robbing, robbing, it means uh, violence. Hmm. So it's really, it is a serious threat to the stability of communities. Communities are being pulled apart because you can't interfere in this. Out because you're going to be threatened. Uh, so you just allow it to happen. You don't. Uh, you don't interfere. You don't. Uh, you don't challenge people <clears throat> uh, who are on drugs. That's dangerous. And so communities, people in communities uh, where drag- crack cocaine is uh, is is prevalent tend to just keep to themselves mm. community life disintegrates
1: Is it different elsewhere um, where drugs are legal for example or decriminalised that people don't live a, a life of crime or end up in prison? Uh,
5: Help certainly. I'm all in favour of decriminalising uh, drugs. I think it's a huge waste of time. I spent five mornings in court uh, with a fellow who was charged possession of cannabis to the value of two euros. <laughs> now, five mornings in court. The guard that had to spend five mornings in court. Court time was used. This uh, guy was given a solicitor, a free legal aid. Uh, the judge asked for a probation report at, at uh, state expense. A vast, vast waste of money. Mm. Uh, so I'm all in favour of decriminalising. But work decriminalising has what decriminalising means is the guard they catch somebody with drugs, they don't prosecute them, they refer them to a treatment centre. Mm. Now, the key to that is that there is a treatment centre you can refer them to, no. so or
6: to, to today,
5: or today, or tomorrow. Those, yeah. We need to expand the, uh, the the treatment options that are available and make them available pretty accessible, pretty quickly when somebody wants treatment
1: today, or tomorrow, or in the next week or, or two, but not in a year's time, which is uh, the case in the town that has been prioritised. By the government. No, it's somebody bizarre. is
5: willing to wait and needs to wait a couple of weeks. You need to test their commitment. Uh, there needs to be an assessment as to, uh, as to what their needs are. So a, a wait of a couple of weeks is reasonable mm. yeah. uh, and indeed necessary. But if somebody, uh, some drug users are prepared to, to do that, but not to wait for three or four months or longer.
1: Okay, Peter, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest. Michael,
3: Michael Reed on LMFM.
1: A fire in uh, the basement of uh, the apartments on Academy Square in Navan has led to a real crisis situation for the residents. Emer Tobin is an aim to. Councillor on Meath County Council and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Emer, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. People are are being forced to move out. How many people are we talking about?
7: Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, it, it, it's around the 100 mark, the number of people who have been affected by this um, terrible situation Um I met with some of the families Tuesday morning and Tuesday afternoon. As you know, Mead County Council um, had a room in New Green Hotel where they were literally trying to take all the details of people who had nowhere to go, who had no um, you know, family or friends locally that they could turn to, to, you know, to stay the night with. So it was good to see they were out of the traps very, very quickly and providing some kind of lifeline for, for the people who have been affected. So I've spoken with some of the families again yesterday, just to see how they got on the first night. And some of the affected tenants and residents managed to stay with friends. Some people had to travel as far as as Offley in Meads to stay with people overnight, and then that causes the problem of trying to get to work on time. Mm. So a lot of difficulties been been experienced by some, and um, a certain number of people then also. Um, availed of the accommodation provided by County Council um, in, a, in a large uh, unit up in one of the industrial estates in Navan, camp beds were provided, and uh, I think about six, six different uh, families availed of that for the first night. So obviously, very very tough, mm. very very stressful and anxious time for people, and um, very difficult for those families having to bring their children up to these. Communal spaces and not knowing how long they were going to have to um, live like this, and and that's where you mm. know I suppose a lot of the questions are turning: How long will this you know sure. take before they can get back to their homes?
1: Take us back to Monday evening, if you would, uh, and when this fire broke out, uh, nobody was hurt. Uh, I understand, uh, but was it on Monday evening that people had to move out of the building without having, being able to return?
7: As far as I know, um, yeah, really good to hear that uh, nobody was hurt and no major damage was, was done to anybody's home outside of smoke damage. Um, and people were able to go in and retrieve belongings and, and essentials that they'd need for, for, for that night. But no, um, with the risk of not knowing the scale of the damage, people were, were not allowed to, to stay. So they literally had to turn around and, and find options very, very quickly. Um,
1: I take it so that means that they were only able to get what they could carry.
7: That 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 is it, that is it. Because you know, until you have the, the professionals going in and the fire officers assessing the damage, it's just impossible to know how, you know, precarious the situation is. What's the story with the whole electricity supply or and mm-hmm. because there had been some flooding as well, you can't mix water with, with electricity lines. So it was you know, it was It was kind of um, unforeseen how dangerous the situation could become. So for that reason, they just couldn't take any chances.
1: So the building is closed. Uh, The doors are locked, I assume, until it's uh, deemed fit uh, for purpose or safe for people uh, to be in the building. And it will be some time before the repairs are are done, because undoubtedly there's a lot of work uh, as a result of the fire and the water damage from uh, the fire services
7: yeah that's correct, michael. It, it appears the damage um, the extent of damage is 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 pretty huge in terms of of piping for for plumbing system, electricity wires, sewage lines, all of that. um it's it's still probably uh, they're at the at the at the um situation where fire officers and all the different expertise are in assessing. How you know um, serious you know the the, the problems are for the, the for the management company and what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. So I suppose they're just kind of dealing with assessing the problems and then they'll have to put into plan how they're going to fix it. And obviously there is serious pressure to do this in as timely a manner as possible because we're talking thirty three apartments here. That's that's the homes for an awful lot of people. As I say, about a hundred yeah. people, a lot of children. Parents um, and and people trying to go to work, so like it it's really it is disastrous for them. It really is disastrous for them. And many of the people, you know, um, I, I spoke to one couple that literally just moved into the apartment last week, and they were obviously over the moon to be able to secure the um, apartment for the for their family, and then just have to face the whole ordeal now of trying to um, get accommodation elsewhere. So you know, I suppose. You know, you're so relieved initially, just thinking about. It. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. Mm. But then you have to deal with the with the, the bleak situation of where are, are people going to go.
1: Mm. Now you mentioned uh, that unit that the council is providing a, a accommodation in. Uh, have you any idea of how long that will be available to the six families? I, I think you mentioned who uh, took up on the offer.
7: I'm not. Fully sure, I imagine um, as other emergency accommodation might become available in the town, and um, possibly people can be diverted from 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 what they have provided in one of the units in, in Navant That ideally they'd be prefer preferring to offer people, you know, rooms in houses and and you know get people back to a more normal situation. So, look, I know as a councillor we're dealing with. Um, housing issues, that's the bulk of our work and there's just such pressure on the system. I mean you know anybody who presents as homeless has to wait a certain amount of time before they can even secure a room Mm. in homeless accommodation so you know this situation just really highlights that there is literally no capacity in the system and when there's a disaster like this or even like what happened over in Bettys Town there where 30 houses were flooded, there literally is nowhere to offer people um, temporary refuge um, when something unforeseen happens like this. So I would imagine um, these, uh, you know, these beds up in the unit in, 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 in the industrial estate will be made available for people because look, there's yeah. absolutely no way anybody mm. can be out on the street. And when there's children involved, they mm. have to have safe safe housing. Well, the, the, the safety so,
1: of uh, the building in Academy Square as you say has to be assessed uh, and uh, it's not known yet when people will be able to return home but what's your sense of it? Uh, do you think it's going to be days, weeks, months or how long?
7: I've heard months said and to tell you the truth I'm loath mm. to, to, to repeat that because you know the the hundred or so people have a huge amount on their plate and it's awfully fraught and Makes life very, very difficult just going about their normal everyday business. So, but I did hear certainly it it will be months. And you know yourself, Michael, when you're dealing with anything where there's lots of different stakeholders and there's insurance involved, it is going to take a, a sizeable amount of time for you know claims to be submitted and all you know oh. all that goes with that. It it is going to take yeah. a, a, an awful long uh, period of time. disaster Some people mm, are lucky; mm, mm. they have their family and friends to lean on. But there are other families that literally, um, I know one family um, wouldn't have um, the, the ability to speak English very well. And I've given them my number to kind of act as a go between because, you know, they just don't know where to go or what to do. Now, don't get me wrong, mm. they are getting help in terms of um, emergency accommodation. Mm. But just even to navigate all the other things and find out information yeah. as to what's happening. Mm it is incredibly difficult for, for the likes of, of, of families like that who just, you know, who don't Dreadful. have enough English. Yeah. So it's it's just some people... Dreadful for, for really everybody. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. OK, Emer, yeah. I have to leave it there. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. That's A2 Councillor on Mead County Council, Emer Tobin.
3: Michael Reed, Reed
1: on LMFM Now the National Advocacy Service for People with Disability says uh, that uh, the three issues uh, that people came to them looking for help with in particular last year had to do with housing uh, issues uh, that they faced in residential or healthcare settings uh, and problems associated with their ability to make decisions for themselves this is according to the annual report for 2022 from NAS, which says its waiting list has grown by 55%. Let's uh, speak now to Joanne Condon, who's uh, the National Manager with uh, the National Advocacy Service. And a very good morning to Joanne and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose if you talk to us about that top issue of housing, it's probably little surprise that anybody who's advocating for people in this country is dealing with complaints about housing or problems or concerns to do with housing. Uh, But probably all the more difficult... or the people you're working with, would that be true to say?
8: Good morning, Michael. It would indeed. Um, for those that we support in the National Advocacy Service, navigating systems like the housing system can be incredibly challenging. And it's really vital that people have access to independent advocacy so that they can navigate that you know, system with support, uh, understand how it works. And there's great challenges that people are facing in terms of the lack of accessible housing and um, just the additional needs very often that people have in terms of the additional support they require. And trying to join the different services together um, to make you know, it come together for the person in the way that works for them to support them in their tenancy. Um, and obviously with the wider housing crisis, uh, the, the challenges people are facing have grown considerably mm. over the last year.
1: I'm sure that's uh, the case. Having said that, I I would have assumed that the people that you represent uh, would be prioritised in in terms of providing accommodation. Is it a case that it's difficult to find appropriate accommodation?
8: Absolutely. Uh, There is a lack of appropriate housing in all parts of the country, more parts more particularly than others. And, you know, the challenges that people face, as I said, in terms of trying to match the support that they sometimes require within the housing, joining those two together can be an incredible challenge. And whilst there are particular housing um, supports available for people with disabilities, there just simply isn't enough. So supply is, is simply not, not strong enough to meet the demand that's there. And as a result, we are supporting many people with disabilities facing homelessness living in emergency accommodation and for many people that we support um, due to the nature of their disability, that's incredibly challenging.
1: That's shocking actually. I'm very surprised um, that there's uh, people who are homeless uh, living with uh, disabilities. As I said a moment ago, I'd have thought that those people would have been prioritised because of their disability.
8: Again, there just simply isn't enough housing supply there to meet the demand and that is not our experience. We're supporting many, many people who simply cannot access Housing. They're on, you know, housing lists for many, many years. Um, obviously, you know, there, there is progress in the area of policy in relation to this. Um, most recently, there has been um, a new strategy um, that, has, that has emerged, but there just simply isn't enough, isn't enough houses there. So the need for advocacy for people is clearly growing as a mm. result of that. As I said, it's a very complex process to navigate. Right. Um, And for many of the people we support, they simply would not be able to do that without adequate support. So our concern in relation to those that are sitting on our waiting list at present is, you know, very often their situations may worsen when they can't access an advocate to support them to even understand how the process works or, or simply be able to gather the type of information they need to be able to progress their applications and so on.
1: Okay. Um, uh, You've dealt with an awful lot of issues over the course of uh, the last year, despite those uh, waiting lists, over three and a half thousand issues. How how long does it take to come off the waiting list?
8: It varies, uh, Michael, depending on what.
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
8: Some of our waiting lists are more pronounced in some of the larger areas like Cork, Dublin, Limerick, generally in the cities. Um, So it's very difficult to give an exact figure. It does vary from place to place, but we are seeing the length of time that people are on waiting lists grow overall uh, because of the pressure that we're under in terms of resources. And there really is a, a fundamental need for an increase in funding because without having the access to advocacy, people, really many of those that we support certainly would not be able to exercise their rights in and of themselves.
6: Okay,
1: and a lot of people have new rights, don't they, Um, that the ward of court system has uh, been uh, replaced by the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act?
8: Absolutely, and that really brings a very sharp focus on rights. Um, so there's therefore a greater focus on advocacy, the disability landscape is changing, and all of that very positive. Um, and of course, in terms of people having the support they need to be able to make their own decisions, understand their options, have the information available to them to be able to work through what it is that they want, You know, advocacy is a critical part of that. The Assisted Decision-Making Act has its own code for independent advocates, such as the recognition of the key role that advocates play in that piece of legislation. So it's really positive to be moving towards that rights-focused approach Mm. um, in the area of disabilities. But but again, without adequate resources, people simply won't be able to access the support they need to exercise those rights. Mm. So that Mm. is a fundamental challenge.
1: Okay. Uh, And that's where you come in, uh, where you can advocate uh, for people uh, when possible. But obviously, there's a delay in that because of uh, the time that it takes to come off the waiting list. uh, And that waiting list uh, continues to grow. Uh, Is that down to a lack of staffing?
8: Um, Yes, that is part of the problem is that we we have not seen any additional staff added to our complement of of overall headcount since 2011. And nonetheless, we've seen the demand for the service grow considerably. That's partially due to a greater awareness of advocacy, partially a greater awareness of of our service, you know, in particular. Um, But, you know, as I've said, some of the changes in the wider system such as the, the legislation that you mentioned and the challenges, of course, that society are facing around homelessness cost of living. All of these things are driving the greater demand for the service. So there definitely are more boots needed on the ground in order to deliver the service that's badly needed.
1: Okay. Uh, I Take it that uh, with some of uh, the people that uh, you're advocating for uh, that you're contacted by other people, by family members, friends, relations...
8: We are, and um, we can receive inquiries from anybody, uh, including family members, neighbours, staff, GPs, nurses, really from anybody at all that recognises that somebody may may wish to engage with an advocate, and we can be contacted through our national phone line Monday to Friday from 10 to 4 through our website advocacy.ie and by email to info.advocacy.ie by anybody at all.
1: Okay, and we'll give out that phone number in a moment. Uh, Is this for people with what would be called uh, a recognised disability?
8: Absolutely, yes. And and that's quite a broad um, number of people that we can offer a service to. It would include people with intellectual disabilities, with physical disabilities. Those with autism, acquired brain injuries, learning disabilities, sensory disabilities and mental health. Okay. So it's quite a broad reach.
1: And if they have a, a problem uh, that they need help with, uh, they can call you or email you uh, and there will be help. Uh, there may be a waiting time, but there will be help uh, there to uh, assist uh, through the process. Uh, the national phone line you mentioned is 0818073. O double O, that's o 0818 073 O double O, email info at advocacy.ie. Nice to talk to you, Joanne, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us and to join us on uh, the program. This morning, Joanne Condon is uh, the national manager with the National Advocacy Service. Now, we played some clips of Donald Trump for you on the program uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, when he was speaking um, at a, a rally in Alabama. Since then, he's been speaking in New Hampshire. Uh, and. Well, I don't know. He's outdone himself, I suppose. Uh, I think maybe we'll hear just a couple of clips. One, uh, as to how America will change and improve when Mr. Trump is elected as the next president.
6: With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country We will rout the fake news media. We will defeat crooked Joe Biden and we will drain the swamp once and for all.
1: Once and for all, Mr. Trump says. uh, But that's, of course, uh, if he's not in prison, he's facing a, a lot of charges. And he had something to say about that, too.
6: How can my corrupt political opponent, crooked Joe Biden, put me on trial during an election campaign that I'm winning by a lot? but forcing me nevertheless to spend time and money away from the campaign trail in order to fight bogus, made up accusations and charges. That's what they're doing. I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Terrible.
1: American democracy.
6: Thank you very much. No, it is. So think of it. They say charge him. Now, you know, they they miscalculated a little
1: bit. Yeah, they seem to have miscalculated all right, given the support that there is uh, for Donald Trump and the prospect that he might actually become the next president of the United States. Michael
3: Michael Reed on on LMFM. It might
1: sound hard to believe, uh, but the cost of renting somewhere to live in Dublin is more or less the same as it was a year ago. Yes, there's little difference over the course of the year, according to the latest daft.ie rental report. Which shows that market rents in Dublin rose by just 0.2. quarter on quarter and that it is the second quarter in a row where there's been little or no difference. Let's speak to the author of the report for daft.ie, Ronan Lyons, who's an Associate Professor in Economics at Trinity College in Dublin. Good morning to you Ronan and thank you indeed for joining us. We have to ask you, what is going on? Because it's a very different picture, isn't it? Elsewhere in the country, in county 11.2% higher in the second quarter than a year previous in Louth, 12.1% more expensive to rent than it was a year ago. Why is it so different than the situation in Dublin?
9: Yeah, and you've you put your finger on it. that's the that's the real takeaway from this report is that what sort of only a hint of it in the last three months ago, the last time the last report, and um, but you can see it much more clearly now. Um, Since the start of the year, Dublin rents have have effectively not increased, whereas rents elsewhere in the country have continued to increase and increase at a pretty sharp rate um, uh, by historical norms. Uh, even just as you mentioned in the last um, the last three months uh rents are up uh three and a half percent in Meath and four and a half percent in loud that 's what gets you to the kind of year on year comparison where it 's eleven or twelve percent mm. higher. The only thing that 's different in Dublin than the rest of the country it 's not on the job side if you look around the country, unemployment is at an all time low and incomes are up. 4% a year on average uh, it's on the supply side it's the, the supply of homes in Dublin uh, o- over the last 3-4 years and, and more or less at an increasing pace as we got into 2022 and 2023 new rental homes have come on the market and they have alleviated some of the pressure in the system in Dublin but outside Dublin no new rental homes have opened up and therefore there is no re- relief from the pressure that has been b- building up
1: Okay, uh, it's not that Dublin has become unaffordable.
9: No, I think, it, well, uh, you can never rule that out, mm. but I think it, you'd have to. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big coincidence that, that rents have stopped increasing in Dublin at the same time the supply has opened up. Um, you, you know, arguably Dublin could have been unaffordable two years ago or four years ago. It is always more expensive than the rest of the country. Um, and the thing about the rental market is, it, it, unlike the sales market, one of the ways in which it adjusts, and it's, a, it's an adjustment that puts more pressure on rents, is that if you had, say, three students in, uh, uh, or three young professionals in a place 10 years ago, they might have added a fourth, and then a fifth, and they may even now have six people in that in that home. And that's, instead of three people paying, that six people's budgets rather than three. And that kind of thing is, is what has pushed rents up, in particular in Dublin. You, of course, here's some horror stories um, uh, I myself heard of someone and there was uh, one bed with 11 people in it um, and, and that kind of stuff is illegal and should be counted down on but even at the sort of the, the three beds or four beds with three, four, five, six people that's not illegal but that is a way in which you get this ability in the rental sector to keep on rising far faster than, than incomes are rising.
1: Okay, so have we got a template for solving this problem that seems to have eluded minister after minister, government after government for the last 15 years or so?
9: I'm going to be the typical economist here and give you the two-handed answer. On the one hand, absolutely. And it's not complicated. Supply is the solution. If you're short on homes, build more homes. And build more homes for owner-occupiers, build more social housing, absolutely. But also, make sure you're building more uh, homes for renters too. And that's the, the, on the one hand, that's the positive side of things. Um, Dublin is showing us that, and hopefully Dublin continues um, to, to see more rental accommodation built. But, and there is a but, The reason that we're only seeing rental homes, new rental homes opening in Dublin and not elsewhere is because construction costs are so high and therefore it's only viable in terms of if you think of the market rent. Um, uh, uh, and the construction costs and compare them side by side the only place those maths work is in Dublin and construction costs have gone up significantly in the last two years not down. It's the job of the government to figure out how to bring down those construction costs so that it becomes viable to build in Kildare and Mead but also in Cork and in Galway and in Waterford and in Sligo and all the other places around the country that are also short rental homes.
1: Mm, Okay, uh, forgive me explain that to me uh, I, 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 why is it more viable or why is it viable uh, to build in Dublin and not viable to build elsewhere is it the scale of the projects it's-
9: it's not really the scale of the project. If you think about construction, because if you're building a two-bedroom apartment, you're building a block of two-bedroom apartments. When you put the block in and you do all the maths, it's probably going to let's exclude the cost of the site for the moment just to make it kind of um, comparable. Um, you're, you're looking at maybe about four hundred, four hundred 450,000 euro in, in, in build cost. If we call it 400,000 euro we say, okay, how does that translate into the break-even rent that that developer or the owner, the subsequent owner is going to have to charge? Large, probably about €2,000 Euro a month. Um, and then, of course, you'll have your side cost on top of that. In Dublin at the moment, the average market rent is €2,350 Euro a month, but nowhere else in the country comes close. So even in uh, even in Loud and, and Mead, you're talking about sixteen or €1,700 Euro a month as the average rent. Um, so it's just mm. co- costs are basically the same everywhere in the country, but rents in Dublin are higher. And it's that difference that is driving... Um, uh, the construction in Dublin that's not happening elsewhere.
1: Okay, so if you could charge 2,300 euro a month in rent, uh, you might solve uh, the supply problem in Louth and Meath, uh, but nobody wants that to yeah, be one, the solution. One
9: solution is to charge higher rent, the <laughs> yeah. other solution is that if mm. you get that 400 grand down to 300 yeah. uh, grand to, mm. to build, then you'd be talking about maybe 1,500 a month as a break-even rent.
1: Okay, well, I'm sure nobody renting wants the first possible solution. The second one, grand but 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 is that realistic i mean is that going to happen given uh, the inflation in construction
9: well for a number of years people like me were arguing that the government really needed to understand what was under the hood in construction costs why was it so expensive to build in ireland compared to other countries and for a number of years the government wasn't really interested in that because that is a complicated thing that would take you know detail and years to solve in the last two or three years, to their credit, they have finally taken this issue on. The Department of Housing published a study earlier this year trying to compare build costs in Ireland with, with other countries. This is a sort of a nitty gritty, you get the architects and the quantity surveyors and the engineers in and figure out why it is. Um, uh, it's not an economist' uh, uh, brief; it's, a, it's an engineer's brief, so to speak. Um, but it is doable; it's not impossible. If it's if it's if possible to build an apartment in Brussels or Amsterdam for three hundred thousand euro, it should be possible in, in Dublin or in Cork or indeed in Loud. Um and, and I think that's the. It, it, it's not easy, but mm. it, it should. Uh, but it's, it's it's possible, and therefore it should be a priority.
1: Okay, so what does that mean uh, if uh, we continue uh, as we are and we don't bring down? The construction costs are we talking about two, three, four percent increases over the next three months? A, another 12 percent over the course of uh, the next year for people who are renting locally here?
9: I think some of what we're seeing at the moment is the cost of the impact of, in particular, Ukrainians coming to Ireland uh, putting a squeeze on on the accommodation. That's a, an extraordinary intake, almost 100,000 people for a country of our size. And that was always going to put pressure on the housing system. As that eases, I think we're going to still see increases. But I would be surprised if this time next year we're talking about increases of 12 or 14 percent, or indeed in some counties we're talking about 22 and 24 percent. I, I, my expectation is that rent is still going to go up but at single digit rather than double digit rates
1: Ok, uh, I was interested uh, as well uh, that you've surveyed sitting tenants uh, because your surveys are, are sometimes criticised by landlords uh, because uh, you look at, at what's being asked for in rent on the open market so uh, this uh, I suppose um, changes that perception of the data that you're publishing
9: yeah, and the figures we've talked about are open market rent. If you're in the open market, these are the kinds of increases that you're you're going to see. We also include in the report a survey of sitting tenants, and we asked them what's happened their rent since they took up their, their tenancy. And we can use that to build an alternative index. You think of it as movers and stayers. You stayed in the same place since 2011 versus if you'd moved um, every year um, since 2011 as a, as a renter, and. There's a very clear breaking point around 2016 when rent pressure zones were introduced. Sitting tenants have seen far smaller increases, usually around two, three percent a year. In the last year, it's actually been a bit higher, like four um, percent, but it's well below the 10, 12, 14 percent that is being seen in the in the open market. Um, yeah, and, and, and uh, 20 years ago, when I was doing well, not quite 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I started doing these reports, mm. the typical tenant. Uh, would have typically changed their, 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 their place, changed their lease once every 12 or 18 months. So it wasn't really a gap between movers and stayers. But now if you get a place, you keep it because of the shortage. So people are staying three, four, five years. And therefore, we needed to make sure we're capturing that in a, in a report on the market.
1: Very good. Ronan, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Ronan Lyons is uh, the author of uh, the DAF.ie quarterly rental report and an associate professor in economics at Trinity College. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Ellen, thank you, as always, uh, for your message. Uh, WhatsApp text from Ellen. She says, Michael, I was listening to your programme yesterday about civil servants and TDs on 75 Thousand euro pensions. Yet people who worked for forty years are expected to live on two hundred and sixty-five euro a week. It's disgraceful. Thanks, Alan. Let's not forget that the civil servants, the retired civil servants, also get the two hundred and sixty-five euro on top of their seventy-five thousand euro, which is their public service pension. So they get. Their public service pension, which is worth 75,000 euro, and they get the state pension, the 265 euro, uh, as well. I'm sure many people working for 40 years, as you say, Ellen, in the private sector would have had private pensions, uh, maybe not worth 75,000, though. I don't know of anybody uh, who. Uh, would have a, a pension of uh, that size. Anyway, Noel McCormick, uh, thanks uh, for your message uh, to the programme today too. Noel says, going back years, I've been a good supporter of Father Peter McVary and the brilliant work he does for the homeless. I'm very disappointed though this morning with a statement on the Michael Reid show stating that drugs were a bigger threat to the country than the IRA. Noel would like to remind Peter McVerry that the IRA were created by the British to protect the nationalist community in the northern part of our country. Thank you, Noel, uh, for uh, such straightforward comments. We've somebody uh, in touch with us uh, who says um, that uh, when Donald Trump, this is Eric Cuthbert, when Donald Trump was president, he withdrew American soldiers out of Afghanistan. This saved thousands of American soldiers. Uh, Thanks, Eric. I'm not sure um, uh, if most people would uh, look on it that way. I think uh, what happened was that the people of Afghanistan were abandoned by the Americans and left to the fate of the Taliban. And for many, that's been a, a terrible, terrible fate. Thank you, though, for your message to the program. If you'd like to comment on our show today, our telephone number is 0419832000. You can ring us on that number 0419832000. You can text uh, to uh, 086 658 that's a, a text message or a WhatsApp message same number 086 658 or if you prefer you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM
3: FM. Now
1: if uh, you've been listening to us over the course of uh, this week you'll know that next week Tuesday and Wednesday of uh, next week uh, the Thomas uh, Darcy McGee Summer School will be held in Carlingford uh, and what do you know about Thomas Darcy McGee Uh, I hear you say, uh, born in Carlingford, uh, died, executed in Canada uh, and at the time was a member of uh, the Canadian Parliament. Do you want to know more? Well, you may be interested uh, to hear that as part of uh, the summer school, a play called The Trial of Thomas Darcy McGee Before the Court of History will be staged. It's written by Anthony Russell, who joins us now. And A very good morning to you, Anthony, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I know you've written this play uh, which I think is billed as an historical and political fantasy uh, but can you tell us at this stage if you know the ending?
10: Uh, We do not know the ending because the ending is decided by the audience uh, which is the jury.
6: Ah, right. Uh,
10: The play is really a court drama. As soon as you come into the courtroom you are greeted by the clerk of the court and you are reminded that you are a Uh, juror, and that you will make your decision only on the evidence that you hear.
1: Okay, well tell us about the evidence. What is the the case against Thomas Darcy McGee then, for people who are attending the play and find themselves as members of the jury?
10: Well, uh, Thomas Darcy McGee was an Irish Republican with John Mitchell when the Young Island Rebellion at the time of the famine in 1848. He went to America, uh, escaped to America, and absolutely hated America. He thought that the Irish got a very bad deal in the ghettos. He then moved to Canada, particularly to Griffintown, in Montreal. He thought that the Irish got a much better deal in Canada, and he declared that the Union Jack flew there but cast no shadow. He became a Canadian MP and was a founding member of the uh, Canadian Confederation. In fact, he was the lead spokesman for the Canadian uh, Confederation. When the Fenians invaded Canada in 1866, McGee bitterly opposed them, Uh, and uh, they took their revenge in 1868 when they assassinated him on Spark Street in Ottawa. They shot him through the back of the head. Uh, Therefore, the question is, was McGee a traitor to Ireland? And that is the question to be answered by the jury.
1: Okay. Who will be giving evidence in this trial?
10: Uh, Well, the evidence will be given by uh, Alexander MacDonald, who was an orange man and Prime Minister of Canada, Uh, and a good friend of Thomas Darcy McGee. Evidence will also be given in his favour by his wife, Teresa, who had to put up with his alcoholism. But the prosecutor is John Mitchell, his one-time friend, and he is defended by Gavin Duffy uh, from Monaghan. Duffy had a similar trajectory as uh, McGee because he became a constitutional colonial uh, politician and was Prime Minister of Victoria. So he too could be branded with the uh, title traitor, possibly. But he is defending McGee. It's a courtroom drama.
1: It's a courtroom drama that dates back to 1868 and the key players are all ghosts who've come back from the grave. Uh, The world has changed... It's actually... I'm sorry, I was just going to say the world has changed a lot since
10: 1868. It has. And the uh, ghosts are aware of what has changed and they comment accordingly and they use what has happened since then as part of the attack on McGee and the defence of McGee.
1: Okay. Uh, Issues such as Brexit uh, uh, will uh, feature in this and how the world has changed. Uh, But uh, the theme of uh, the summer school uh, in Carlingford next week is uh, the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on. So I I take it that there will be some reflection on the peace process here.
10: Yes, well, Gowan Duffy, uh, uh, McGee's lawyer, will make the point that McGee has been vilified for years in Ireland but that every uh, Irish uh, Republican Party has followed the constitutional road that McGee eventually took. So yes, modern politics will feature in the play.
1: Okay. Um it's very, very unusual way of uh, telling a story. It won't be the first time uh, that it's been staged, uh, but it'll require some cooperation, I take it from the audience. Uh, I would imagine uh, that those who attend uh, will be very interested in the topic and happy to participate. Has that been your experience elsewhere?
10: It certainly has been our experience. This trial of McGee is part of a series of trials that we have put on. Uh, for example, we put Padraig Pearce on in his own house, on trial in his own house, in Pearse Street in Dublin. Uh, we then took it to the Shankill Road, where Padraig Pearce was found not guilty of treason. Uh, on the other hand, we took uh, James Craig to uh, the Lower Arch Road, where he was found guilty of treason. The following night, we took James Craig to Hilltown, and he was found not guilty of treason. So we never know what way the audience is going to vote, the audience-stroke jury is going to vote. Have you
1: you come to a verdict yourself on Thomas Darcy McGee?
10: Well, I'm a biographer of John Mitchell, so that that would colour my uh, view of uh, Thomas Darcy (laughs) McGee. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And as you know, John Mitchell himself takes some defending these days.
9: (laughs) Okay,
1: well, that's... uh, 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 A pragmatic political type answer, uh, (laughs) spoken from the very middle of uh, the fence, and uh, I'm sure with good reason, because uh, you want to uh, leave it to people uh, who will attend next Tuesday evening uh, to come to their own conclusions.
10: We are assured by previous audiences that it is very humorous, that it's challenging, and that it is balanced. So I hope that the audience that turns up on uh, Tuesday night will agree with those three statements.
1: Okay. Uh, And you mentioned uh, the current political parties and how they all followed uh, in the footsteps of uh, Thomas Darcy McGee. I I take it, though, that uh, there's a significant difference uh, between uh, political uh, uh, policies and philosophies uh, in the world today than there was back in the 1860s.
10: There are, but uh, the, uh, the uh, Irish Republicanism and uh, Irish Republicanism initial rejection of the constitutional route is still with us. So the seeds of our present troubles uh, obviously are in in past uh, Republican movements and past Unionist movements. So uh, what is in the play is very relevant to today.
5: Yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, 25 years on from the Good Friday uh, agreement. Um, What are your thoughts uh, on uh, the current situation uh, politically in in, uh, the North today, Anthony? Uh, I mean, the Taoiseach up there yesterday uh, talking about this political vacuum and time for people uh, to come together and uh, provide uh, the people of Northern Ireland with a, a government uh, in a, a time of crisis, uh, in a, a time of uh, cost of living crisis, and people pinned to their collar, and, and indeed so many I- issues uh, that are being neglected as a result of the vacuum.
10: Well, it's not it's not the first time that the uh, the national question, uh, unionism's questions have. Uh, been uh, treated uh, more importantly than economic issues but I think overall the Ireland that we live in today is a much better Ireland Uh, and uh, the indications are that the Ireland of the future will be a very different Ireland but hopefully also a better Ireland. Uh, None of us can ignore the demographic trends Uh, and uh, I think the Good Friday Agreement will have to be renegotiated in the light of uh, emerging new trends.
1: Hmm. Uh, that um, power sharing uh, and um, uh, the Lahan system is it?
10: Uh, yes. Well, uh, power sharing is the only way forward. Uh, we have two, three ethnic groups, which uh, philosophically, to a large extent, are diametrically opposed. So mm. it's only by coming together and sharing power that, that we can make progress.
1: Yeah. Uh, unless one party decides not to that. They don't want to, which is the case at the moment with uh, the DUP. Should the Good Friday Agreement renegotiated be renegotiated in that sense to do away with the Dahan system?
10: I think it should be re- renegotiated to move towards a voluntary uh, government opposition. I think uh, it was very necessary hmm. uh, at, at the start of the Good Friday Agreement to make sure that both well, the both communities were, prote- were protected. But I think we have now moved so far forward that that we can uh, engage in a, a voluntary coalition. Uh, the present impasse will pass. All impasses pass.
1: Okay. Well, perhaps. Uh, we'll hear uh, more commentary uh, during uh, your play, as you say. Uh, some modern day issues uh, will be discussed uh, throughout the course of it being staged on Tuesday next week. We we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Anthony, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program today. Uh, we'll hear more about the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School tomorrow on the program. But thanks today to Anthony Russell, who is uh, the author of uh, the trial of Thomas Darcy McGee before the court of history.
3: Michael, Michael
1: Reed, Reed on LMFM. Time for us to speak once again to Pat O'Toole who is the political editor with the Irish Farmers Journal about the prospect of of a New Farmers Political Party. This is the front page story of the Irish Farmers Journal this week and it's on foot of a survey carried out by the journal. Good morning Pat, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. The results of this are quite staggering, I think it's true to say. 72% of respondents to your survey, almost three quarters as you point out, three in four farmers would like to be able to to vote for a bespoke farmers' political party.
2: That's right, Michael. It is quite a a stunning figure. Um, There's been a lot of speculation around a farmers' party or a rural party, especially since March, when the BBB Farmer Citizen Party were catapulted to prominence all over Europe, when they became the largest party from absolute obscurity, became the largest party in the Dutch regional and Senate elections. And the Netherlands is one of the more urban countries in Europe, and um, 18 million people in a country less than half the size of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, so in, in a country as rural as Ireland, where still uh, half of the population are uh, deemed to live in rural Ireland, uh, would there be room for a, a rural movement and a farmer's party? Uh, so... We asked the question in our survey and, as you say, 72% of farmers said that they would give their first preference vote to a farmers' party war one established.
10: All
1: right, and there's been talk of establishing a a farmers' party. Michael Fitzmaurice has been sounding out people, the rural independents have been doing likewise. The Irish Independent is speaking this morning to Helen O'Sullivan of uh, the Farmers' Uh, Association uh, and, uh, or the Farmers' Alliance rather uh, and they have decided to form a political party without Michael uh, Fitzmaurice or the other rural independents. Yes,
2: yeah, so we have a very fragmented picture um, at the moment in terms of farmer representation. I chaired a meeting that Helen O'Sullivan actually spoke at on rewetting wetting in Ballinasloe which was organised by Michael Fitzmaurice and two of the colleagues in his uh, independent alliance um Marion Harkin and Michael McNamara. So there are already identifiably uh, 23 independents in the Dáil. Most of them, I, I would think 18, certainly 17, are rural independents um, across three different groupings. So we have a significant presence in electoral politics uh, of people who put rural issues at at the very heart of their priorities, like the Healy Rays, Michael Fitzmorris, um, uh, Matty McGrath, uh, Verona Murphy in Wexford, Richard Dunahoo in Limerick. Um, so if Peter Fitzpatrick is an independent in... Uh, in right. Laud, and yeah. you've got mm-hmm. you've got typically um, the most of the independents are Jean pool either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, or in the case of Carol Nolan in Lee Shoffley, and I suppose Patrick Tobin mm. is the A&2 leader, but the sole representative of his party in in national uh, in the national parliament. Mm. Um, and, and like Carol uh, Nolan, he's former a... Sinn Fein. Right. They're both former oh, yeah. Sinn Fein, mm-hmm. so mm. you have that dynamic. But but separate to that, you know whether a new um, a party will emerge now. Um, the, the Farmers Alliance have had a couple of meetings. Um, I reported on one in in, uh, in back in May. It was one of their very early meetings. My colleague Noel Barden was at their first public meeting, and Caroline Vanderplas, the leader of the BBB, actually addressed that meeting uh, by Weblink, mm. and uh, she's half Irish, so there is a there is a link there. She's very interested in what's happening in this country. Okay. So the, I suppose the question is whether one of these parties will gain traction, the Farmers Alliance being the first on the pitch as a political party. We have a whole plethora of uh, farmer representatives. No less than 11 different groups spoke at that meeting in Ballinasloe. Mm. so So um, I think that right now what we do know is that there is latent support for a theoretical farmers party. Of course, it could be said that uh, a theoretical farmers party can mean all things to all people so each farmer can visualize the party representing his priorities or her priorities and um, and, and having a candidate that they would identify with in, in their constituency when we get a party on the uh, on the um, uh, running and uh On the electoral register, it will be interesting to see how much support uh, a real party will gain with real candidates and real policies and real priorities. Because at that point, obviously, you you have to choose between different priorities. You can't have everything else a priority. And in farming, for instance, if you take one extreme, you have the uh, dairy farmers uh, unhappy that the derogation is being... Uh, 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 changed uh, which will affect stocking rates on more intensive farms uh, whereas the more extensive farmers uh, in the country are very concerned about rewetting and rewilding under the nature restoration law. So uh, different farmers have different priorities. It's going to be quite hard even for a party specifically representing farmers to capture all of them.
1: Indeed. One thing we do know for sure, though, is that politicians want to get elected. Uh, That's the job of politics before anything else. And undoubtedly, uh, this survey that you're publishing today in the Farmers' Journal uh, will make people think if 72% of farmers want a bespoke party to represent them, uh, there must be something in it, and that could uh, sway people's thinking to some degree. Uh, But it also says a lot, uh, does it? not about how people in rural Ireland are feeling and the pressure that they're coming under. You mentioned some issues there but on top of that because there's much more to your poll uh, than just uh, the political party end of it. Farmers are under pressure as we know but 80% of them are worried about the uh, income over the course of this year. 80% feel that they're going to see their income drop.
2: That's right. Um, It's pretty inevitable incomes are going to drop across the board this year. We had an exceptional year last year in terms of prices, but also in terms of uh, the ease of farming. Uh, Grass grew well, crops grew well, we had great weather, um, an easy harvest. (coughs) Um, Silage was caught at, at the right time, huge weather windows to do all the things farmers need to do. Um, this year is the opposite we've had very narrow weather windows we're way behind on silage even though it's only early August uh, it's a very difficult harvest Uh, winter wheat should be mopped up by now Um, an awful lot of it is still to be cut and it's down Um, spring barley uh, is poor quality uh, moderate yields and it's breaking down and it's going to fail to, to get the premium prices prices are back so you know we have those pressures on farming and while um, input prices have come back very significantly over the last four months, an awful lot of farmers have to buy their inputs at the start of the year, um, especially the tillage farmers in, in Mead and Loud, they, you, you have to get your fertiliser out under the crops early in the year and they bought the inputs at kind of if you want to say 2022 prices and uh, those huge spikes that came with mm. uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So They've paid high prices for their inputs and they're going to get a a 2023 price for their product. So there's a squeeze there. It's a difficult year.
1: All right. And are they adequately represented uh, by uh, the existing political parties? Uh, You you, you have looked at uh, the support uh, for... Those parties now. I take it that that's not good news uh, for political parties given that farmers are looking for a, a new party. Uh, maybe you could tell us about that and the support that there is for the Minister for Agriculture.
2: Sure. Well, um To answer your second question, first, the Minister's ratings have fallen uh, significantly. They went up all through last year, and perhaps that was a reflection of the mood among farmers as the year got better and better for them, and as their incomes uh, turned out to be very good for 2022. So Charlie McConnell's positive rating peaked at 37% in December, uh, and it's gone way back now, back down to 19%, and his negative rating has increased from 31%, up to 46% farmers uh, that means 46% of farmers uh, evaluate performance as being poor or very poor so uh, that will be disappointing for the minister uh, his party Fianna Fáil <coughs> have also dropped they've been passed out by independents who now um, and we've talked about mm. the independents and the, the phenomenon of them across rural constituencies in, in uh, all over the country and I think that the uh, Rural independents are now 24%, up 7%. Fianna Fáil have dropped 3%, 23%. Fianna Gael are the largest party. They have uh, dropped as well, though. They're down to 34%, which is their lowest uh, polling since 2010 when they became the largest party in the country, de facto, when uh, the economy collapsed and Fianna Fáil support waned. Mm. Traditionally, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, between them, would have had about 80% of the farmer support. That's down to about 55% now with Fine Gael on 34% and Fine Fall on 23 sorry, 57%. So so there's a, there's a big drop-off. Interestingly, Sinn Féin are not gaining traction. They had slowly risen to about 16% last year and um, this time last year, <clears throat> uh, but we're back, back to 12% by the end of the year and they're stuck at 12%, which is little more than a third of their... Um, their performance in in national polls. So mm. I think that um Sinn Féin will be concerned um, and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will be concerned and the independents are the ones who seem to be on the rise.
1: It's very interesting. It'll certainly raise a few eyebrows. Pat, thanks for telling us about the survey published in uh, the Farmers Journal this week. Pat O'Toole is political editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. (laughs) Bye-bye.
6: The Michael
2: Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
6: Hi, I'm Daniel,
2: founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.